Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I still get asked, why did it take so long for Carlos to come out? First, I want my music to sound the way I want it to sound. Is that so hard? You know, is that too much to ask? Sitting in the kitchen, the house of Macon, Loretta singing on the radio. It took Lucinda Williams three years to finish her fifth album, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. The reasons for the delays were endless. She cycled through four different producers. There was behind the scenes label drama that left the future of her career uncertain. And most of all, her own perfectionism had her rethinking everything. At one point, she recorded an entire version of the album, only to scrap it and start over from scratch. But that perfectionism resulted in an arguably perfect album. Car Wheels on a Gravel Road sounds so casual and raw that you can't believe it took so much time and effort to make. It's a detailed look at one woman's experience of the South. There are songs about sketchy bars, breakups, flawed characters, and of course, those gravel roads. When Williams released Car Wheels on a Gravel Road in 1998, she was already one of America's most talented songwriters, as well as one of its most underappreciated. A poet of the everyday, with a sandpaper voice and genius for melody, she launched her career with a pair of folk blues albums that she recorded in the late 70s. She's always been meticulous. It took most of the 80s to record her self-titled third album. But by the late 90s, commercial success continued to elude her. She was low on both money and confidence. And yet, with Car Wheels, she made something truly special. Not quite rock, not quite folk, and not quite country— the same hard-to-classify sound that made it tough for record labels to market Lucinda also made this album so unique. It's the story of Lucinda's life, even the parts she totally made up. I'm Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone and your host for Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, the podcast where we dig into 10 albums off our brand new list. In this episode, Lucinda Williams' Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. To fully appreciate this album, you have to understand how Lucinda Williams grew up. Here's the managing editor of Rolling Stone Country, Joseph Hudak, who's interviewed Williams multiple times and written about her music over the years. The title track to Car Wheels on a Gravel Road drops Lucinda right into the back seat of her parents' car as a little girl. I had these pictures in my mind from when I was little with my mother and father before they got a divorce and all that, you know, in their early years in the 60s. And I remember 
being in the back seat, you know, my dad driving and the voices in the front seat. The song Car Wheels really describes a lot, you know, like the stuff that was going on inside the family. I mean, it's a little short story, really. Lucinda Williams' father was the poet Miller Williams. He was known for his plain spoken work and gritty imagery. He taught at the University of Arkansas, too. He actually read one of his poems at Bill Clinton's second inauguration. Lucinda's mother was an amateur pianist who also battled manic depression and paranoid schizophrenic tendencies. Her parents divorced when she was 11 or 12, and she was raised primarily by her father. Before they settled in Arkansas, they moved all over the South, Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia. When she first wrote the song Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, she didn't realize she was writing about herself until she performed it live in front of her father at Nashville's Bluebird Cafe. And my dad came back and said, Honey, I'm so sorry. And I said, What do you mean, Dad? And he said, Well, that new song you sang, You're the Little Girl in the Back Seat. It was kind of surreal almost. You know, I kind of was starting to just explore writing about these things. You know, that went pretty deep, that stuff. It's kind of like, you know, talking with a therapist. Bits and pieces of Lucinda's life are scattered all over the album. Drunken Angel is a tribute to the eccentric songwriter Blaze Foley. He was a friend of Lucinda's who was tragically shot and killed, and later on he'd become the subject of a biopic directed by Ethan Hawke. Lake Charles is a heavy song. It has this harrowing backstory about Lucinda's old boyfriend, Clyde Woodward. They used to take these culinary road trips across the South in Clyde's El Camino, stopping for Cajun sausage and beer. Clyde was somebody I was involved with, I was in a relationship with for about four years. He was another character study. He was another drinker, drugs. I didn't know about the drug thing till later, but just the wildness. You know, he was like an authority on all things blues, all things Louisiana, Texas blues, Louisiana blues. He loved to cook. He loved Louisiana food. He would make gumbo and invite everybody over. Life was a big party. But Clyde lived hard and it caught up with him. His liver gave out, basically. And I went to see him in the hospital at one point and played a couple of songs for him. And I mean, he was in denial up until the moment he died. <laughs> he, the doctors apparently told him that, you know, he could turn things around, but he would have to quit drinking and he couldn't eat spicy food anymore. He literally would rather die than not be able to drink beer or eat gumbo. He basically made that decision, so he wasn't going to change. The subject matter for the songs on Car Wheels flowed naturally from Lucinda's life, but the recording sessions were anything but smooth. When recording began, Gurf Morlicks was in the producer's chair. He had worked with Williams for a decade, co-producing her two albums before Car Wheels. The songwriter Steve Earle, who later worked on the album, says Morlicks helped transform Lucinda's sound. The relationship between Gurf and Lou was pretty intense. It was there from almost the beginning. And, you know, it was sort of what made her not just a folky anymore. Lucinda didn't like what she was hearing, though, especially when it came to her voice. We had basically all the tracks cut, but I wasn't happy with the way some of the tracks were going. And I was trying to do vocals on a couple of things. I was overdubbing vocals, which I don't like to have to do. And I was frustrated. And Gurf and I started butting heads. Lucinda was looking for a very specific vocal tone. She wanted to sound like Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders. I loved the sound of her vocals on the first Pretenders album. I loved that sound. 
where you could hear all the little nuances and everything. That kind of breathy thing. So around the same time, Steve Earle calls Lucinda. He says, hey, I have this song I want you to sing on with me for my new album, I Feel All Right. The song was You're Still Standing There. Lucinda said yes, and she joined Steve and producer Ray Kennedy at Kennedy's studio in Nashville. It's called Room and Board Studio. We've known each other since we were teenagers, literally. So when I got out of jail, she was in Nashville, and we started hanging out some, and I wrote a duet specifically for us to sing. And she came in and sang it, and she fell in love with the way her vocal sounded that day. When Williams heard what Steve Earle and Ray Kennedy captured in the studio, it was like a revelation. She raved about it to Rick Rubin, who had Lucinda signed to his label, American Recordings. Steve gave me a copy of his rough mixes that he had so far, and I loved the sound of it. I loved the way his vocals sounded, you know, real present and everything. So it was agreed upon by all involved, Rick and everybody except Gurf, that I would go in with Ray Kennedy, with Steve kind of at the helm. You know, now we're recutting the whole album. Everybody else is delighted. We're all really psyched. Gurf is really upset and unhappy. So we take a break, and Gurf goes, he has his cabin in Vermont, and he just never came back. And we just moved ahead. So Car Wheels on a Gravel Road began again, but this time there was a pivotal change in the recording studio. Instead of laying down a scratch vocal, which is really just studio jargon for a temporary vocal, Ray Kennedy insisted that Lucinda try to sing it live with the band. One take. She was nervous. This was the thing that really struck me. She said, well, I've, I don't do live vocals. I said, really? I don't see any reason why you shouldn't go for a live vocal. If you don't get it, we can always come back. We can always punch in. You know, we can fix stuff. Well, the first song we cut, she sang live with the band, and we came back in the control room and listened to it. And she was so happy. She was going, wow, I did it. We've already learned that Lucinda's a perfectionist, so it's not going to come as any surprise when I tell you that. Even though Lucinda liked the new, raw sound, she didn't love her vocals. And this didn't sit well with Steve Earle, who is kind of no-nonsense in the studio. He could be kind of blustery and intimidating at times. (laughs) And I remember, I think it was late Charles, and I said, I want to do my vocal again. And he said something like, Lulu... You're singing your Louisiana ass off. You don't need to do that vocal again. When are you going to learn to trust someone? It's just a record. Get over it. Well, I ended up in the vocal booth, like in fetal position, crying on the floor. Like I was so distraught. Like, oh my God, he's intimidating me and trying to control me and all this stuff. I think that's might be a little exaggerated. Again, that's Ray Kennedy, Steve Earle's co-producer. I don't remember her being in a fetal position, but Steve and I had a, had a really good pace. We like to keep up a good pace in the studio. It kept it energized. I think when you slow things down, it slows down your creativity in your brain, in your fingers, in your, your ability to perform. And Steve Earle knows the record is close to finished. But, you know, he's not just a producer, he's also a live performer, and he has to get back on the road. We had four tracks, three or four tracks out of 11 or 12 that Lou wasn't happy with the vocals, and we couldn't, you know, in good conscience, try to beat her up and tell her that they were better than they were. So she was back to where she'd gotten stuck before, which was doing vocals that she was happy with. 
So when she started going in and started singing, the process slowed down and we weren't getting finished. Just, we weren't moving as fast. Meanwhile, came the deadline. I had to get on a bus and go on the road. That's when Williams' bass player and de facto manager at the time, John Shambodi, got involved. Random side note, he was also a chiropractor in Los Angeles. Anyway, Shambodi suggested Lucinda work with the keyboardist for Bruce Springsteen's E Street band, Roy Bitten. Roy Bitten at that time was dating John Shambodi's daughter. And Shambodi knew a lot of people from when he played with Huey Lewis and everything, you know. So Roy Bitten was working in L.A. And he said, yeah, come on out and, you know, I'll help you wrap this thing up. Now, why we had to go all the way to L.A. to do this with Roy Bitten, I don't know. Bitten was the perfect choice for Lucinda. He was a perfectionist just like her. And most importantly, he was very patient. And he committed to finishing the album at L.A.'s Rumbo Sound, which is where Guns N' Roses recorded Appetite for Destruction. Finally, after three different cities with four different producers and an army of musicians and guest players, including Emmylou Harris, Buddy Miller, Charlie Sexton, and Jim Lauderdale, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, was done. So even though Car Wheels is finished, Rick Rubin's label, American Recordings, delayed the release a whole other year. It added one more leg to the album's already long journey. It was finally put out by Mercury Records in June of 1998. When Car Wheels comes out, it doesn't really know where to fit in. I mean, there's no Americana music at the time. It's a rock and blues record, and it gets nominated for a Grammy as Best Contemporary Folk Album. It wins, too. It's not a stretch to say this record helped birth the modern roots music movement. I was told that my music fell in the cracks between country and rock, which is now called Americana, but that market wasn't available back then. The very fact that Car Wheels can't be defined by a genre is what makes it such a touchstone for other artists. The songwriter Katie Crutchfield is an Alabama native who performs under the name Waxahachie. The first time she heard the record, it spoke directly to her and her own conflicted feelings about the South. There are things about being from the South that really don't feel cool. Being like a vaguely alternative, sort of like on the fringe person in the South is hard for a lot of reasons. So a lot of the tradition and the imagery and that kind of stuff is something that you grapple with. And the thing about Car Wheels that I love is that she just leans so far into it and I think is so authentically like left of center that when I heard that, I felt like, oh my God, finally, here is music that really captures that like internal struggle that I've always felt. So make no mistake, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road is the story of the American South but it's distinctly Lucinda Williams South. Well, of course it's my version because, you know, the songs come from me and they're about my experiences and my memories and all of that. I guess you could say, well, it's romanticized a little bit, but I think that's the nature of creating something anyway, you know? I mean, poetic license, what have you, but it's very realistic to me. The song Too Cool to Be Forgotten is a cornerstone of Car Wheels. It's set in a juke joint in Rosedale, Mississippi, and it plays like this snapshot of a southern Saturday night in the Delta. There's no good, there's no bad in this dirty little joint. There's so much character and imagery in the song that it's like Lucinda just walked in with her pen and paper and started writing down everything she saw. In truth, she never set foot in the place. Mr. Johnson sings on a corner by the bar. 
After I moved to Nashville, I used to go to this bookstore all the time. I discovered this book of photographs. It was out on one of the tables, and it was called Juke Joint by Bernie Imes, and I picked it up, started flipping through it, and I bought it. He had taken pictures of these different juke joints in Mississippi. They're just beautiful images. One of them is some kids playing pool, and behind them on the wall it says too cool with the number two, K-O-O-L, to be forgotten. And then underneath that it says June Bug vs. Hurricane. I thought to myself, well, I hope this works. I don't know if anybody's going to know what this means. or It, it was kind of just a lot of imagery all just kind of thrown together. Katie Crutchfield understood it immediately. She calls Too Cool to Be Forgotten a master class in songwriting. She puts you in that place that is kind of like a place that doesn't really exist anymore or that like most people won't get to experience. And yet, if you are really kind of getting in there and like listening and paying attention and like, absorbing what she's saying, it puts you in that place so clearly. That's kind of like her magic. It's not an overstatement to say that every part of Car Wheels on a Gravel Road was dissected and analyzed to within an inch of its life. If not by the producers, then certainly by Lucinda Williams herself. But despite all that fiddling and second guessing, the album somehow sounds effortless. It is not easy to make a simple sounding album. It's actually quite a bit harder to make something that's really, really straightforward and simple sound good. It, the songs have to be really good in order to do that. I really feel like that is a great example of someone who just had a vision and took some chances and really wasn't satisfied with putting it out until that vision was completely seen through. And I find that to be pretty inspiring too. For all the hell that everyone went through in the studio, Steve Earle knew this record was going to succeed. There's been a lot of controversy about, you know, the production on that record. It was made so many times, if you want to look at it that way. And the truth is, none of the guys that were involved in that process could have really fucked it up in the long run because the songs were so great and she'd already written them. And you know what? Car Wheels, even if it wasn't as good as it was, would be incredibly important because it gave her permission to go on and do the next thing. And she's done that ever since and made the next one and the next one and the next one. Nobody can take any credit for helping her find anything. I don't think she was lost. It just takes what it takes. I was 31 when I made Guitar Town. I've been national since I was 19. So it takes what it takes. It's been 22 years since the release of Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Lucinda and Gurf Morlick still don't talk. She's close with Steve Earle, though. They tour together. And she reunited with Ray Kennedy for the first time since Car Wheels to record her new album, Good Souls, Better Angels. It just got nominated for a Grammy. But more than two decades later, Lucinda is still a perfectionist. She says she can't help but wonder what the album might have sounded like if she listened to something that Rick Rubin asked her early on in the recording process. He asked me, he said, would you ever consider working with different musicians? At the time, I said, oh, no, no, you know, I'm loyal to my band and all that, so... I often wonder to this day what would have happened had I dropped my band at the time and gone with Rick and would have been a whole different thing. 
Even when it came to this interview and I asked Lucinda to identify herself, she was still thinking of what she could do differently. Just to make sure we got it. Sure. Hey, everybody. This is Lucinda Williams. Thank you so much. Or you want me to just go? No, I think that's good. I think that's good. This Um, is Lucinda. Let me do one more. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) See? The vocals. (laughs) <laughs> it all comes back to that it all comes back okay this is lucinda williams there's no good there's no bad in this dirty little joy we'll get into what makes williams songwriting so special after this short break we'll be right back Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery. Code Wondery. When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stewart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stewart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stewart freeze-dried dog treats. Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today. now joined by my colleagues Joseph Hudak, John Freeman, and Claire Schaefer. Do you each want to introduce yourselves? I'm Joseph Hudak. I am editor of Rolling Stone Country here in Nashville. I'm John Freeman. I am also an editor at Rolling Stone Country here in Nashville. I'm Claire Schaefer. I'm a staff writer at Rolling Stone. Car wheels on a gravel road finish at number 98 on the 500. Does that feel right to you guys? Yeah, I mean, I think it is one of the defining country albums of the 90s if you can even like call it just a country album because it crosses into so many genres and was so defining of that era of rock as well as country it's sort of transcends definition yeah it also has such a great story great songs and really being an album that is is hard to uh, classify and define and pigeonhole is what kind of warrants it being in the top 100 I'm actually sort of surprised to see it as high as it was. I mean, pleasantly surprised because it still feels like a bit of a relative obscurity to me. It's not a multi-million seller in the way that the Dixie Chicks albums were. So it's this thing that's kind of steadily grown in magnitude in the last 20, 22 years. Do you each remember the first time that you heard this album? I think I'm the youngest Lucinda Williams fan on this podcast. So the way that I got into this album was actually through Katie Crutchfield, also known as Waxahachie. About five years ago, she was touring for her album Ivy Trip, and I saw her perform at this like very small acoustic set in a chapel. And I remember I was actually like sitting in the rafters, like looking down at her. In the middle of her set, she performed this cover of Lucinda Williams' Greenville from this album. 
And it just like took my breath away with how gorgeous it was. And later I went back and actually listened to the whole album and like it sort of struck me as very odd at first because her voice and Lucinda's voice are like could not be more different. But their songwriting styles so clearly had this similarity to them and just the way that they talk about the South and the way they talk about their surroundings and their relationships was so similar that I just kind of got into her through through Katie's work. The first time I heard it, I think um, it was probably about two years after it came out. This would have been the early 2000s. I was, uh, it was like New Year's Day or the 2nd of January, and I was in New Orleans with a couple of friends of mine, and I was deep into a snobby indie rock phase. So I was studiously avoiding anything that could be construed as country. And my friend popped this CD in, and I had heard her name, but I, I wasn't really sure what it was. And it was like hearing her talk about the things that I'm actually seeing as we're driving, like exiting Louisiana, you know, crossing like Pontchartrain and this kind of like flat Delta wetland going by out of my window, it completely transformed me. I grew up in Northeast Alabama. So spent a lot of time in Louisiana and North Florida and Mississippi and all around there. It was like, oh, wow. She's written this entire story about where I live and where I grew up. Yeah, that's wild. You couldn't have picked a better way to experience that record, I think, John. Yeah. I mean, you're literally driving around where she's singing about. For me, it was similar to you. It was a couple of years after it was released. I think it was 2001. I knew who Lucinda was, but I didn't know much about her music until I saw CMT Crossroads paired her up with Elvis Costello. And I started hearing these songs for that that installment of their show which pairs a country artist with a rock and roll artist. And I was like, wow, these songs are so good. So a guy I worked with at the time actually made me a burned copy of Car Wheels. And he's like, start with this. And it just blew me away. I mean, the production and the sound and those songs are so accessible, I think. John, can you sum up where Lucinda was in her career when she released Car Wheels? This is like one of the fascinating things to me about that, because she was in her mid 40s and had put out a series of albums that were not super successful. She had never been a big selling artist. I think Mary Chapin Carpenter had recorded one of her earlier songs on a successful album. So she may have had a little songwriting money coming in. But I mean, she was by most standards of the music industry at that time and probably this one past her prime just in terms of the ageist and particularly around women the way that the industry operates you know a 45 year old woman putting out this defining album it seems so completely unlikely to me yeah even coming to it decades later it's still surprising to me that this is like not even from a critic's perspective just like as a general audience most people think of this as being her defining album not even Lucinda Williams, her self-titled, which has, you know, Passionate Kisses, that's like arguably her biggest hit, even though it's the Carpenter hit that obviously got famous. But I think it speaks to the staying power of this album that people still remember Car Wheels the most. How does this compare to her earlier releases? Her first album, Ramblin', was just a collection of blues covers, and that was in 1979. She covered like Robert Johnson and Clifton Chenier and, and a lot of traditional. She did Hank Williams and then put out two records, including Happy Woman Blues. So there was a lot of 
different kind of influences for what she was doing by the time she got to Car Wheels. And Car Wheels really became a little bit more of a polished rock record. You know, we talked about if it's a country album and and what that means, but it's really kind of a rock and roll record to me. I mean, it's just obviously it has these country instruments. There's accordion on there, a whole bunch of different type string instruments as well. But it sounds like a rock record to me. Even just from Sweet Old World, which is the album that preceded it, Sweet Old World sounds a lot more like not exactly a traditionally kind of Nashville music robe production, but a decidedly like more country sounding album. And and yes, Car Wheels, like Joe says, really ramps up the rock aspects of what she was doing. Yeah, it's interesting too. Lucinda Williams, the that self-titled record from 88, she put out on Rough Trade. That is also on the RS500. And that label was a UK label that was known for indie rock. So she really didn't come out of the gate with this quote-unquote country career. Clara, what did collaborators like Steve Earle and Emmylou Harris bring to Car Wheels? I mean, those are such heavy hitters when it comes to country music that it's almost wild that they appeared on this album that doesn't really have anything to do with what Nashville was doing at the time. But I think it just kind of ties into this mythology and this legacy of American roots music that this album is sort of tying itself to. Having Emily sing back up on Greenville, for instance, it's like you don't always notice that she's there. But when you do, it's like, oh, it's like this like little Easter egg of getting to hear this kind of icon of traditionalist country in the middle of this album that is doing so many other things besides that. But I think it's just another way for Lucinda to link herself to this legacy and to link herself to this history of country and American storytelling. Especially in terms of the sound, there is such a, a genrelessness to it. And it's not quite country, not quite folk, not quite blues. How did that play into how people perceive the album, both at the time it was released and today? Well, for context, I think this is important. In 1998, when this album came out, what was happening in country music was like Faith Hill's Faith album, which was a huge, huge smash for her. But it was, you know, this polished, very, very kind of aware of what's going on in pop music at the time album. And then you have like the Dixie Chicks put their album out and certainly a more country sounding album, but way, way more polished sounding than what Lucinda was doing. So even though it came out on Mercury, along with I think Terry Clark's album came out on Mercury that year, like from a country label, it still felt miles and miles away from whatever was happening in the country mainstream at that time. There's this great New Yorker profile of Lucinda Williams from 2000, where he talks about how she was at dinner one day and kind of complaining about the country music establishment. And it ends with her saying like, oh, fuck Faith Hill. And it turns out Faith Hill is like sitting right at the table next door in Nashville, which like for me, that just gave me a better idea of how much this was all happening at once in kind of the same part of the country. And yet it feels like Lucinda Williams is like worlds away from this like extremely pop polished phase that Nashville was going through at the time. John, I want to return to the story you told earlier about your experience listening to this album for the first time and the picture that Lucinda paints of the South is so surreal and so striking. And what jumps out to you as our our resident Southerner? (laughs) I think the South is really good at myth making in, in ways that are both really good and really bad. And I think Lucinda Williams keenly understood that. The last few years in country music, and probably beyond that, certainly, but there's been this kind of like 
obsession with writing about places. You know, there's a lot of these mentions of like riverbanks and the the Georgia clay and all of that. And none of those things transport me in the way the way that Lucinda can when she says something like, you know, driving from Lafayette to Baton Rouge in a yellow El Camino, listening to Howlin' Wolf. It's like, okay, I'm there. I, I can see the swamp out the window when I hear that. Also, just the way she kind of sings about the Mississippi Delta, which is, if you've never been there, it is a strange, like going to another planet, basically. It is as eerie and empty and yet as full of everything <laughs> as you can possibly imagine. And she has a way of of conveying that that is, it feels accurate, and yet it's really impossible to kind of get it exactly right. I think when you talk about authenticity with this record, you do have to talk about the song Too Cool to Be Forgotten. It's her finding some meaning in these photographs and finding some meaning in these places that speak to her own childhood, even though she's never actually been there. It's this line between what feels authentic and what you've actually experienced and finding the truth somewhere in the middle. And I think her own experience is even threaded into that song, particularly in the last verse. She's talking about a lover who's threatening to jump off of a bridge in, in Lake Charles. That is a set of images that's separate from the kind of inside the recitation of what she's seeing inside of this juke joint that she never went to. You know, so she's figured out a way to take something that's completely imaginary and also like stitch it together with her own life, scenes from her own experience. Yeah. And that she calls back to later in the album with like Charles. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just this threading and such a careful way of storytelling that I don't think you're expected to like know it from the first listen. It's something that you keep revisiting over and over again with this album. I'm glad you brought up authenticity. Like this is kind of a problem with a lot of more singer-songwriter oriented music is that the idea of of authenticity is such a construct, you know, but there's such a premium placed on everything feeling the idea that it has to be so so real, but in a way I I think this this is better because she used her imagination. As we heard from Katie Crutchfield earlier, this album has had a massive impact on artists today. Claire, what is the legacy of the album today and where can we hear its influence in other artists? The Weight of These Wings by Miranda Lambert. I think getting an album like that, that's such a, you know, almost mythological depiction of this country superstar's divorce and this great double LP that's like a songwriting masterclass that's like released on a commercial country label in, what was it, like 2017, 2016? I don't think you get that without Lucinda Williams. Like, I think that's her influence right there is just this sort of continuation of country myth making in a way that doesn't really define itself by one particular genre, but it's just about depicting someone's life and their legacy. I think you could also kind of look at the period shortly after Car Wheels came out and start to see the formation of and kind of institutionalization, uh, if that's the right way to put it, of Americana as an actual like commercial genre. I mean, the term's been thrown around forever, you know, in reference to like John Mellencamp or whatever, but there being an actual industry that sort of formed and Car Wheels 
being this like essential pillar upon which it was built. You know, it's like that and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And like a bunch of these things that kind of came out around mid 90s, 95 to early 2000s, I think, and like sort of became a template for what Americana would become in the next few years. Even as celebrated as this album has been over the years and also such a, a breakthrough success for Lucinda, she resented it for a while. Joe, why is that? I think it's because of the fact that she had this reputation as being difficult. I think that really kind of stuck in her craw uh, that she didn't want to be viewed as, you know, a, the difficult songwriter, the, you know, the tormented genius. She talked a lot about how there was these, you know, label issues and trying to find the right home for the record. But, you know, it really comes down to her wanting to deliver the product that was in her mind, you know, and she didn't, she couldn't hear it with some of the producers she worked with. She couldn't hear it with Gurf. She heard it with Steve Earle, but then Steve had to go back out on the road to do his tour. And that's when Roy Bitten came into the picture. How does she feel about it now? She's very happy with it now. I think uh, she was so thrilled when the album ranked at 98 on our list. She was equally as thrilled to have uh, the Rough Trade record come in, her self-titled Lucinda Lucinda Williams record. I, I think those two albums really are important to her, who she is as an artist. And it's funny, you know, I think about her latest record that just came out, Good Souls, Better Angels. That found her reuniting with Ray Kennedy, who engineered and did some of the production on Car Wheels because she liked that sound so much. So it, it kind of goes back like the circle is completing itself for her working with him again. Albums that have this type of long, painstaking recording process really often beg the question of whether or not it was all worth it. I know you all are super fans of the album, but is this a perfect album? Does that perfectionism translate to the final product? I kind of think so. I'd be hard pressed to name a track on there that I don't like. It's one of those that I rarely ever skip anything on it. Even Joy, which is barely even a song. It kind of has like one line that she says over and over and it's one chord and it never really changes at all. Even that is great in its own messy, jammy way. I would call it a perfect album. Yeah, the experience of making it may not have been perfect, but in the end... It's pretty close to perfect. I think what's so cool about it is that, you know, it could have become this like Americana Chinese democracy because she just slaved over it and slaved over it and different producers and added all these sounds to it. But what happened was actually the opposite. It became an album that sounds as if you're right there in the room. Like you can't hear any sense of overproduction on this. You don't know what was tacked on later. To me, it sounds like a live record. Forgive the word, but it's as real as it gets. I agree with that, Joe. It's one of those albums that you just can throw on and, yeah, like not skip a thing because it just sounds like it all came from one jam session, which I'm sure is like what she wanted. She wanted to perfect it and tweak it to the point where whenever she played those songs, she wouldn't have to worry about what they sounded like. That's why I'm very jealous. I've never gotten to see her perform it live, but, you know, maybe someday. Not knowing anything about the process of recording the album, I was genuinely shocked to find out that it was three years of all these complications, all these different producers. How did she pull off this live in the moment rawness that we hear on the album? I think that's the great mystery of Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. It was a record that took three years to make through three different producers. It came out 
on a label that it wasn't originally recorded for. And there were so many different players on this album. I mean, she had Steve Earle in, Jim Lauderdale, Emmy Lou we talked about, Buddy Miller, Charlie Sexton, who plays with Dylan. She just called in all these players. I joked about it before, but it really was like this Chinese democracy of Americana country music because it could have just become this album that never saw the light of day. And instead, it just sounds like this very rootsy, organic, spur-of-the-moment album. Kudos to her. I, I don't know how she did it, but you know, when the material is that strong and the players are that strong, I guess it all works in the end. He had a reason to get back to Lake Charles. Lucinda Williams' Car Wheels on a Gravel Road ranks 98th on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, which can be found on our website, rollingstone.com, and in the magazine's October issue. I'm Brittany Spanos. This is Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums. Executive producers are Christian Horde, Nathan Brackett, and Gus Winner. It's produced by Emrys Eller and me, mixed by Michelle Lands. Our senior producer is Jasmine Morris. Megan McBride is our production manager. Bridget Shelsey is our production assistant. Fact-checking by Jonathan Bernstein. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Raymond Roker and Morgan Jones. And for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. You can find this podcast exclusively on Amazon Music, on the web, the mobile app, or on any Echo device. Did an angel whisper in your ear and hold you close? Hey, this is Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, where twice a week I speak to meditation teachers, top research scientists, and even the odd celebrity about how to do life better. And on a recent episode, I spoke to the huge global pop star Dua Lipa about how she does her own life. What are the non-negotiable practices and principles for her? Those are just like life things that I like to live by. Uh, Never do the same job twice and never leave today's thing for tomorrow. Mm Mm-hmm. Those are really important things. The episode is uh, incredible and actually quite practical, especially when it comes to creativity. Is it true that in typical overachiever fashion, you wrote 97 songs for this record? (laughs) Yeah, I I, I wrote 97 songs. We wrote a lot of songs, but not all of them are good. You know, that's the other thing. Like, I have to write myself into a good idea. To listen to this episode and more, follow 10% Happier on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.